You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Brian Foley. Welcome to the Earn Invest Podcast. If you compare me with my guest today, you will see a number of similarities. We are both youngish, middle-aged, both physicians, and both have declared ourselves financially independent. However, if you look past these commonalities, you will note some real differences. I grew up in an upper-middle-class family with professional parents. My guest didn't. I graduated medical school with zero debt. My guest didn't. In many ways, I was destined to succeed by birthright. Many people are not. Different roads, yet the same destination. Can anyone make it here in America today? And just as importantly, is a high salary the only solution? Dr. Brian Foley is a rags-to-riches American success story. He grew up in poverty, living in a one-bedroom shack, and his family had no car. He also dropped out of high school. He eventually returned to get a degree in chemistry, got an MD as well as an MBA, and became a popular doctor financial blogger. His new book is entitled Wealthy Doc's Guide to Achieving Financial Freedom. Brian Foley, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start with that really big question. Can anyone succeed in America today? Doc G, I am honored to be an Earn Invest podcast. I've been a longtime listener and, and fan of yours. And uh, as you know, we've met personally in the past. So I'm, I'm really honored to be here. I think the American dream is alive and well from, from my experience. Now, I don't want to dismiss the the white privilege and the things that I have been given. You know, I, I did grow up in poverty, as you mentioned. I'd be glad to talk more about that if you like. But, you know, I had two loving parents at home. I had a brother and a grandmother who loved me and supported me, and, you know, and the roof over my head and, and food in my belly, as my dad would often remind us. Although we were poor, we had a roof over our head and food in our belly. Um, you know, I benefited from state funding and education and grants all along the way. So, you know, what happened for me and what worked for me was great and is still available, I think, for most most people. But I don't I don't want to dismiss, you know, I have certainly have a lot of patients, uh, friends and colleagues who have have much harder roads uh, along the way, you know, a single mom and six siblings and you know, living in the inner city, um, for them, there's a lot of struggles. But for me, I think I was blessed with, with good, loving parents and uh, intelligence and work ethic. And, uh, you know, we're in a country of, of freedom that rewards that kind of entrepreneurship and, and personal dedication and growth. So for me, yes, uh, it's alive and well. As I said in the intro, Brian, you and I have a lot of commonalities. I mean, we're both physicians and we both like to talk about finances and financial independence. Do you ever feel like people kind of write us off? They say, well, of course, you're going to talk about finances and financial independence. You're doctors. You have a high salary. You're not like the rest of us. Do you ever get that response? Oh, do I ever? Yes. Um, and in fact, you know, I give a lot of physician talks. I do want to mention, I just had some oral surgery, so um, usually it it does affect my speech a little bit, but hopefully it's clear enough. Um, But yeah, I give talks to physicians, and one of the things I tell them is, if you go around in the average population and you talk about all the financial stress that you're under, 
you will not get sympathy from people, and that's understandable. Let's be frank. In America, as a physician, it is virtually guaranteed you are having a high income. There's very little variability in the lower floor of physicians who are able to work a full-time job. And, you know, that places us in the 5 to 10% of, of household income. So the income side is strong. And for a lot of people, that's hard. And it's easier, frankly, to save money when you have a high salary. Um, you have connections, you have intelligence, you can reach out to a friend who's an accountant or attorney and get advice. So we have a lot of advantages. But that is not to dismiss the very real challenges for physicians. And that financial stress is real. Um, and so I think that's you know what really compels me to help them. And as we're talking about physicians, I want to remind everybody that we're not just talking about physicians, we're talking about high income earners in general. So when we talk about the struggles of people who make a lot of money, that's not just physicians, it's other professionals. Brian, when people think of physicians, again, like you and me, they generally figure, well, you probably came from physician parents or other wealthy parents or professional parents. Like I said, for me, that is the case, but for you, it is not at all. Talk about your upbringing. You didn't really grow up with a lot of money around, did you? Uh, I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. You know, I've heard um, stories by, I think it's Chris Chen, um, you know, who grew up in China and was digging in a medical waste facility for, for toys and hoping one day to be able to drink a can of Coke. So, you know, <laughs> getting food out of a dumpster, you know, I can't relate to that. Yeah, that's um, Christy Shen from Millennial Revolution Christy you're talking Shen. about. Yeah, yeah. Thank okay. you. Yeah, thank you for the reference. Um, so I hear stories like that, and I'm I'm kind of ashamed to say I, you know, I grew up poor. In America, even the poor generally live fairly well. Um, and so I didn't have to worry about, you know, starving. Uh, meal to meal was not a concern. You know, on the other hand, I didn't know any physician. Not only that, I didn't know any professionals. I had no relationship with anyone who had even graduated college. Um, certainly nobody in my family, parents, uncles, extended cousins. I didn't know anybody who had even gone, attempted college. And we had a community college in our area and nobody even went there. So my parents were high school graduates, um, but that's about it. So my, you know, my expectations, well, others' expectations of me, I would say, would be pretty low. And honestly, looking back, if I looked at uh, me as a teenager, playing video games, a little bit irresponsible, not a great student, not the sharpest tool in the shed, destitute uh, parents who, you know, couldn't guide me. And I never took the SAT, for example. I, I don't even, you know, have any kind of uh, chaplain training program or something like you might in an upper middle class family. So, yeah, that was a disadvantage for sure. I would not have looked at the young teenage me and said, boy, I'm going to bet on this horse to, you know, succeed uh, financially, socially, academically in uh, in the world. I, you know, it would be a long shot for sure. Did you actually drop out of high school? Yes. What happened there? Oh, uh, I didn't like high school. Um mm -hmm. <laughs> it's uh, maybe a little bit of gender stereotype, but you know, a lot of girls and my mother, grandma, other people I knew were very conscientious students. They would underline their notes and do their homework on time. My brother and everybody else I knew that were guys, we would hang out like we just we weren't into school. And you know, I 
I didn't have the fire in my belly yet. I didn't find something that I was really interested in or passionate about to really get involved. Um, looking back, you know, it was in a small town in upstate New York, and it was not the greatest public school system. You know, I had a friend who grew up in New York City, and he's like, man, if you were there, they would have put you in Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, you know, even the public schools to get you more support, more education. So I, I, I was probably looking back, I was a bit bored. Um, but we certainly had a lot of household trauma, uh, that, you know, adverse, as you call them, ACE events of childhood. And, you know, looking back, I think I was probably trying to process a lot of what was going on and just wasn't engaged in my homework. My parents weren't that involved in the school, of course. And so, you know, I was struggling all along and I did like to read and, you know, I was interested. I was reading the biography of Einstein and teaching myself calculus and computer programming on my Sinclair 1K computer. And so, you know, I had, I saw some opportunity, but I also was bored with school. So I found out in my junior year that you didn't need a parental consent to drop out of high school. I think if I found out you could actually do that 16, I probably would have been, dropped out then. But I dropped out 17, which was my junior year of high school. So clearly, like, you didn't have a lot of modeling. Your parents were high school graduates, but not college graduates. They weren't professionals. This is a far cry from a guy who eventually gets an MD and an MBA. You said at the time you didn't have the fire in your belly, but obviously there was some real intelligence there, right? Because you're teaching yourself calculus, you're messing around on the computer. When did you develop the fire in your belly? Like, what happened that all of a sudden made you think, okay, maybe dropping out of high school wasn't the best idea. I need to start doing things. My uh, parents divorced. My father remarried and to a young younger woman who was attending community college at the time. And she wasn't really into school that much, but she took some hard courses, including physics. And she would go out on, on dates with my dad, and I would look at her physics textbook and start doing your homework for her. Mm-hmm. I thought it was fascinating to figure out, you know, how this cart moves up a hill and, you know, two balls, one weighs heavier than the other and you drop them and they land at the same time. Like this counterintuitive. I, so I was fascinated. And then she took a biology class. It was the same kind of thing. And, and she was asking me to help her with her coursework. And she said, you know what? Like you could be at the community college yourself. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then my my dad was always supportive of me even dropping out of high school. Um, shockingly so, actually. My mother was understandably shocked and heartbroken when I dropped out of school. She pictured me in a, as a derelict in an alley one day, I'm sure. But um, my dad was like, hey, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. And, uh, you know, I'm all for it, whatever. So he was supportive. And he actually was the first one that said, you know what? You could be a doctor. And I was telling him some biological facts. And he said, you could be a doctor. So I kind of planted the seed. And then I ran into some very bright people at my community college when I was there. I was at community college for three years. And it was the best education I I got. It was very uh, liberal arts. I learned a ton. I met some brilliant people, both faculty and students. And so one of them, yeah, I hate to 
to mention this, but uh, I will because you asked me. I, he suggested I read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because you hate to you hate to mention this, and I'm laughing because I yeah. loved Atlas Shrugged when I was a kid, and yeah. as an adult, I don't love it. Yeah. but I loved it it's, as a kid. It's a it's a teenage board book. If you get it's the right time, it can motivate the heck out of you because. The strength of that is it shows, hey, you know, an individual can make a difference. They can grow and, you know, become, you know, wealthy and powerful and rich. And, and you know, you can make a future for yourself. That gave me some hope. And it taught me the importance of philosophy, a life philosophy, living by values, knowing why you're doing what you're doing. Um, that really fired me up. I, had, I you know, I hesitate because um, she promoted self-interest above all. Um, she's supported by kind of libertarian views and politics and atheism that, that I don't relate to at all. So that's my disclaimer there. But it did kind of set fire in my belt. And then lastly, as a, as a chemistry major, I met some uh, a lot of pre-med students in college, and, and they were all going for pre-med, and I was doing as well as they were. And I thought, you know, I could do this. So faculty encouraged me, wrote letters for me, and, um, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm in med school. You know, it's it's funny that you mention Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged because I, again, have this commonality that as a kid, when I read it, it really motivated me this power of self and motivation and even what we maybe call today like this idea of hustle culture, right? That if you just anyone can succeed if you work, work, work really hard. And it's funny because now as an adult, when I go back and look at it, and obviously I've been politically affected by the times and what we've gone through over the last few decades, I think of that as a little naive, right? Like there are forces above and beyond you that sometimes affect your ability to succeed. Like we are not all born into the same place with the same privileges, with the same opportunities. And that's something as a kid I didn't connect with. But I also think it's at the center of the conversation we're also having here today. Like, can anyone make it in America? The Atlas Shrugged Ayn Rand version is, yes, anyone can, no matter what, if you just work hard enough and put your heart into it. Um, we want to connect to that. But I think we are also become aware of the fact that, hey, not everyone is born into the best of situations. In many ways, you're the exception, not the rule, right? I mean, most people who grew up where you grew up with parents like yours did not become doctors and lawyers and accountants. I suspect most of them did not make it to financial independence. <laughs> Correct. That's the, the bit of an understatement. I mean, uh, I had a, one friend committed suicide. Um, several become drunks, alcoholics, drug addicts. My best friend went to prison. Um, so, yeah, I think we're right about that. You know, I don't want to get too deeply into politics, but, you know, in general, um, you know, the objectivist philosophy is the role of government is just self-defense, guns, and, uh, you know, we shouldn't have taxes, we shouldn't have public uh, resources squandered, you know, and <laughs> that's one view. And then the other end, obviously, is a nanny state that takes care of everything and protects you and, and does everything for you. And honestly, I don't think either of those systems have proven effective if you look at history in other countries. So there's a role um, for government. I personally think it should be very limited uh, and targeted and questioned all the time. But, you know, there's no question I benefit from, good Lord, I don't know where to begin, you know, from the roads to the freedom uh, in this country to healthcare system that would treat me without insurance as a kid. 
and uh, you know all the way my five colleges I graduated for were all uh, public schools. And so that doesn't just happen. And I had Pell grants that were only available for those who, you know, had uh, virtually no income. So, you know, there's a lot of lot of support along the way. So it's pretty clear why you went into medicine, right? You started doing your father's girlfriend's physics and biology, and you're like, I have a proclivity for this. People said, hey, you could be a doctor. So that eventually led to community college and becoming a physician. Talk about the finance piece. Eventually, you got an MBA, and you're very deeply interested in personal finances. Another thing which you probably had very little modeling for. When did you start thinking about money? Um, I don't remember when I began, but I know it was my teenage years. I was probably 14, 15. You know, and looking back, growing up without money, for the most part, I really wasn't aware of it. Everybody I knew had no money, and it didn't stop us from having a great life. We had a lot of fun. Uh, looking back, I think, oh, yeah, that's free. That's free. That's why we did that. You know, that's why my dad took me out to the park or we fed the ducks or we, you know, we did all these things that didn't cost any money at all. You get free passes from somebody and we would go and, you know, we we felt like we had, had a good life. But I, I had it as a teenager. I don't know where it came from. I think a lot of it was probably growing up poor in retrospect and, and not wanting, well, maybe you should say wanting more options for my life than. Uh, people around me have. I think there's when you're when you're in poverty, you have a very short-sighted view. Uh, I have food for tomorrow. I'm going to work next week. Um, there's no long-term planning and not a lot of options. And I, I felt that was constrained way of living. And I, I don't ever really remember be, striving for a lot of material things, but I, I did always want more freedom, more options than the than the poor people around me. Um, and I realized, yeah, I was more informed um, than, than a lot of people around me. But I remember meeting a friend. He was uh, kind of a friend of the family, a little bit older, but he had a private company. And I said, do you, do you have a Keogh plan for, for you know, you're self-employed? You can have a Keogh plan, which would uh, be like a SEP IRA now. And he said, yeah, like, but why are you thinking about that? Like, I don't know, it just interested me. I I did get a small uh, amount of money. I had an older brother who was in the Marine Corps and was killed. He was living a civilian life, but jogging along the road and through a freak accident uh, was killed. And he had a $100,000 policy uh, through the military, which I think they probably just give him uh, for being a soldier in Marines. And I so I got a portion of that money. It wasn't much, but you know, I asked my mother, "What are you going to do?" She said, "I'm going to lock it up on CD." I remember screaming, "A CD? Like <laughs> what? For five years? I mean, my teenager. I, I want to go to college. I want to invest in stocks. Like what a ridiculous thing to do." But she said, "Actually, she's already put it in CDs." And so she said, "Well, if I break it, there's a penalty." So I said, "Break it. This is my money. I'm deciding." Break it. So she broke it. And I used that money um, to help my community college and, and get started initially. You already knew at that age. It's, it's interesting to me, again, without any of this modeling, that you already knew at that age the CD was not a great idea, that investing in education and possibly investing yes. was the way to go. I mean, did you learn about that from reading or were there role models? Was there anyone who said, hey, hey, Brian, this is what you should start thinking about? You know, back to the societal issues, um, there's a lot of wealthy uh, industrialists, especially in the Northeast where I grew up, 
and they often get um, bad mouth as Robert Barons or, or something like this. But like Andrew Carnegie with his library system, you know, I can't put a limit on how much that has helped people. And certainly I was benefited. We had an excellent local library that was a Carnegie library. And I spent a lot of time there reading all different kinds of, of books. So I'm sure that's where I picked it up. You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about is this realization that money was important and you go to the library, you do all sorts of reading about it. But you also said a little bit while ago, you also grew up with a bunch of poor people who had very little money and yet were happy. Could you have imagined a life where you didn't go into a high earning profession? I mean, was there a point where you kind of like, yeah, money's nice, but we were fine without it versus you ended up going to something that really made you a lot of money? Was salary important when you started thinking about what you wanted to do for a living? Yes. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely important. I took a microeconomics and macroeconomics course at the community college. And, you know, I was interested in boosting my income. Actually, I was interested in investing, but I soon realized that to invest, you need at least a little bit of money to get started. Maybe not a lot, but you need some. And so I, I couldn't invest anything. I didn't have any money. But uh, after learning about how much income affects your wealth and how it would be easier to save with a higher income, I looked. And I remember actually my microeconomics textbook, it had a return on investment of various occupations and physicians were near the top. And in college, I was trying to decide what to do. I didn't decide in medicine until my senior year of college, which is also pretty late uh, for most people. I do remember uh, one of the guys in my uh, apartment building, kind of uh, off campus a little bit, was making fun of me because I had photocopied from a book in the library about how much various professions make. And the part he thought was hilarious is I only copied the pages that were $100,000 and up. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, if I'm going to work and exchange my time, uh, you know, I might as well do something for money. So, so, yeah, so I'm not saying I did this as an altruistic uh, humanitarian. In, in, in medical school interviews, in, in residency interviews, the most common answer you hear is, why did you go into medicine? They say, well, I liked science, and I was good at math and that stuff, but I didn't want to be a lab scientist. I really like people. I want to interact with people. And as much of a cliche as that is, that really does summarize my drives. I, you know, I didn't want to be in a lab. I didn't want to be just stuck in front of a computer program. Um, and I was, a, you know, I really liked people and I found them fascinating, but I didn't want to give up the thinking side that, that I really liked from science. We are talking to Dr. Brian Foley. He is a rags to riches American success story. He grew up in poverty, living in a one bedroom shack and his family only had one car. He eventually became a physician, got an MBA, and became a popular doctor financial blogger. And we are talking the rags to riches story, the American dream. Is it still possible today? We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? 
Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. I have a confession to make. Money has been stressful to us lately. Look, we are in the midst of a house remodel. We are sending our first kid to college, and everything I thought I knew about budgeting has been out the window. The main savior for us has been Monarch Money. We started using Monarch Money about three months ago. My wife and I have been thinking a lot about our finances and our budget has changed, but we love Monarch Money because it's collaborative. We can both look at this together as well as share it with other people like a financial advisor if we want to. It's really aspirational. We can put information in there about, for instance, our kids' college education or about our remodel. And we can see where we need to go and where we are going. This is the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I love about Monarch Money is it's intuitive. It's really easy to sign on and connect all your bank accounts and credit cards. As we said, it's collaborative. It's also customizable. Like We were able to build in exactly what we wanted to do with our kids' college education as well as our home remodel. This is an app that is customer-focused. Really, Monarch Money is looking to make this app useful to you and me and all of us who are aspirational about our money. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners to the show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. We are talking to Brian Foley, who is a physician and financial blogger. His most recent book is titled Wealthy Doc's Guide to Achieving Financial Freedom, Transform Your Physician Salary into Wealth. Brian, you talk about finances for physicians, but really today we're going to broaden that out because really we're not just talking about physicians. We're talking about high income earners in general. So first and foremost, what are the common mistakes high income earners make in order not to build wealth? So, you know, I tell the, the physicians, first of all, if if you're not wealthy, you have money troubles. The main problem is overspending. When you're looking for all the problems in the world of global finance, start first in the mirror. Uh, you know, not, that's a hard thing for, for physicians to hear. And honestly, I think it can come only from a physician. I think if it came from somebody else, they would just dismiss it. So so I use that kind of as, as an intro. And I do agree with you that this is 95% completely generalizable, generic 
personal finance and investing. You know, this stuff has been around forever. You know, we bloggers do not invent this stuff, (laughs) Um, but it's new to physicians. And then there is uh, about, you know, 5% of this, I would say that it's direct to the higher earners and physicians in particular. And to to finally get back to your question, um, you know, doctors start late in their career. Uh, you know, I started at age 30, 31, you know, and that's pretty typical. And that's the first time you start making some serious income and practicing the field that you've been working for. So that's pretty late. And by then, a lot of our peers that went into accounting, engineering, computer science are doing really well, you know, driving a nice car and they have, you know, all nice things. So we're kind of behind the eight ball to start. And we also have a lot of debt. You know, the average debt now is uh, 200000 or more, uh, some with significantly more. I know uh, family practice resident had $425,000 of debt. You know, these are, that's a big uh, gorilla to have on your back starting out walking around. You also tend to want to make up for lost time. Sometimes we have a, a significant other, a spouse who's been kind of dragged along in this mess and they finally like to have a decent house. And, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't make them greedy. Um, you know, they want a nice car and they want some nice things. And so we oftentimes at that stage of life, we're getting married, we buy a house, we have children, expenses start going up. And with little education in how to manage the finances, little time to do it. And then lastly, physicians are uh, overconfident <laughs> because we do tend to be selected out for good, you know, book smarts. And so we kind of think, oh, if I can do calculus, I can, you know, certainly do all this medical uh, finance stuff. I can pick a stock smarter than anybody else. And, and so, you know, all these things kind of pile up uh, to, to make it difficult for physicians. The last thing I'll mention about physicians is also, you know, this can be a a good trait for a physician or a bad trait, we tend to be very trusting. You know, if a patient tells us their history, which is their story of injury or illness, we believe it completely. Uh, we give people the benefit of the doubt. And we feel we work hard and we honestly try to do the best we can for our patients for the most part. And so we assume, well, if you're a uh, certified financial planner or a you know, personal financial advisor, we assume, oh, they have extensive education. They read about journals in that field all the time. And they have your best interests at heart. And, you know, we all know that is necessarily the case. So all that kind of stacks, stacks the deck. But again, most of this material is earn well, save well, uh, invest the difference in that gap between what you have coming in and what you have going out, protect it and watch it grow over time. And it's not rocket science. You said earn well, save well. You kind of lump them together. And I feel like the thing about high earners in general is we pride ourselves on our ability to make more money. If you are looking down the pike at the next 10 years and you're like, I want to make it to financial independence, I need to change my ways. Does it make more sense to think about how am I going to earn more? Or does it make more sense to think about how am I going to save more? Does one take precedence over the other, especially for people who already are high earners? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's why I say, you know, physicians overspend. Um, it's really spending. That's the fundamental problem. It's easier to correct. Yeah, it's quick to make changes. There's tax advantages to reducing your expenses. Uh, it takes off pressure and stress if you can live on much less than you make. Then you're, by definition, not living paycheck to paycheck. So if there's a shutdown during COVID or th- they stop doing the math, you're going to get a 10 or 20% pay cut. You don't stress it as much. You're not living at, at the edge. 
Um, so the high income helps people save if they, they know that they need to do that. But that, yeah, that's that's the big problem I think for for high earners. You know, the other thing is there's a there's a decreasing marginal benefit as I learned in my community college uh, microeconomics, meaning you know that additional dollar doesn't go as far in, uh, in terms of what they call utility or quality of life. So in other words, to put some more meat on these bones, you know, if I as a student I might get a scholarship or something for ten thousand dollars. Oh my goodness, I'm rich. Um, and then starting out, you know, back when I was a resident, we were making about $30,000. So it's about twice that now. Um, yep. Yeah, but, you know, it seemed like a ton of money. Um, and then I, you know, doubled that over time by some side gigs in, in residency, moonlighting, daylighting, things like that. And, and then in practice, I doubled it again. And then through investing, I doubled it again. Um, and so if you had given me $10,000 when I was a college student, that would have really impacted my financial life and my well-being, my quality of life. If you give me ten thousand dollars now, I I would write you an awesome handwritten thank you note. But you know, I guarantee it would not change a single thing in my life. Um, and so, so that's that's the thing to realize is if you're already making two hundred thousand dollars or more, and you're in the top, depending on where you are, three to ten percent of household incomes in America. And you want to boost your income um, to, to 250000 particularly if that's going to mean extra hours, extra work, extra risk. I just don't see how that's, that's going to help. One thing about being in that top 3 to 10% of income earners is it takes a lot of work, right? So you talk about residency. Maybe if you're a physician, you do fellowship. Then you go out and practice. And just like all other professionals, when you first start your practice, you're working really long hours. I feel like the thing that comes with the high income is also the high risk of burnout. How can young people pay attention to that in such a way that they can maintain that high income without getting totally exhausted? Because I think that's like a major risk factor. If we're talking about our financial well-being of high earners, one of those big risks is that they'll burn out in their job and have to stop or take some time off for mental health. Yes, I agree. And, and when I talk to physicians, you know, I talk to them about the terms FI and FIRE, which is new to many of them. Um, so FIRE is financial independence, retire early. And I've never been an advocate of retiring early, but I think every physician should strive for, for, towards financial independence. And, you know, what you really love as a 30-year-old physician may not be exactly the same when you're 50. You know, you may have some some effects of aging or health conditions the environment may have changed, the pressures on society and, and, and you know being employed by a larger network, you know, they may uh, bring you in a direction you don't want to be in. And if you're financially independent, you have uh, less stress, less stress. Let's talk about financial independence. And of course, it's close cousin enough. So you've gone through this process from poverty to high income earner you did the reading, you learned about personal finances, you eventually built a net worth. And at some point you said, aha, I'm financially independent or I have enough. Right. And so, because Correct. you like being a physician, you didn't stop working at being a physician. Maybe you slowed down or pulled back a little bit, but how in your own mind did you define enough? Like, how did you know when it was enough? And just having that knowledge, did that also stem actual change? Because one thing I found is that I can calculate enough, but then when I get there, 
it's hard to actually act on it because we have all these voices saying, oh, but maybe something bad's going to happen or maybe we miscalculated, et cetera. So A, how did you define enough to yourself? And B, was that knowledge significant enough to actually help you slow down? Yes. Um, so I, I do have enough um, and that that's a really wonderful feeling. And you know, I no longer have to contribute to my retirement plans, for example. When that happened, what I defined, I remember running a program by a certified financial planner in Canada called Jim Otar, O-T-A-R. And he is very cautious and advises people, you may not have enough because he did a lot of research on the sequence of return uh, calculations where people thought they had enough and they retired in the year 2000 or 2008 or something and there was a market decline and and suddenly they don't have enough and so that was his caution but he made a software program where you could run your own numbers and i was not quite 50 years old yet at the time um it was about six years ago and i ran the program and it popped up a big window that said you can retire now 99 <laughs> uh, certain you can pull out fifteen thousand a month uh, for the until you're 95 years old, in a three times the household income in America, I thought, if, you know, I I think I could make do on that, you know, and so then I realized, yeah, I'm working because, you know, I love it, and so since then, the, the only change I did make is I went to part time at age 50, and you know, this is another interesting thing with physicians, we think we don't have much power to negotiate, and. You know, even though I teach negotiation workshops and things, I I had some of that myself. That uh, oh, I'm just uh, I work for a large uh, nonprofit institution, three billion dollar organization with eight hospitals. I didn't think I had much clout, but as soon as I negotiated that I wanted to go to part time, I went to part time, and part of what gave me the confidence of that is the financial independence. So we're following your story, rags to riches, you make it to financial independence. You and I were both kind of 50-50-ish. Talk to me about some recent life changes, specifically health-wise, because I know you've been dealing with some things, and has that changed your feelings about money and the accumulation of it? Yes, to say I have health challenges is an understatement. I was first diagnosed with uh, cancer. Um, you know, it's interesting if you have uh, cancer in the breast, they call it breast cancer, cancer in the prostate, uh, prostate cancer. Uh, I had cancer in my mouth, um, but for some reason they lump it and call it head and neck cancer. I never had cancer in my neck, so it's kind of strange, but basically I had cancer in my mouth. And this was diagnosed in, in 2001. And so I was told that time, what, 22 years ago, that I had a 50-50 chance of being around five years uh, forward. I was 34 years old and, and relatively newly married. Um, so, you know, this is unbelievably devastating, obviously. So since then, I've been in bonus rounds. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, that really helps. Um, but I've had multiple recurrences. I had a recurrence uh, 2005, 2006, and a really bad one in 2021. Um, and earlier this year, I went through chemo, radiation. Uh, I've ha probably had seven surgeries in the last year. Has it changed my view? Honestly, it hasn't. I mean, fortunately, I was doing really well all along. You know, the other thing is money is extremely important. I'm sure some people think I'm absolutely obsessed with it because, 
you know, I read personal finance books and vacation, and you know, I, I'm sure that that's a view. But money has never been number one in my life. It's never been the driver for decision making. You know, example that I was in private practice, um, making six hundred thousand dollars when I left uh, to join a university job where I made eighty thousand dollars. You know, voluntarily. I mean, who does that, right? It's nuts. Um, and, you know, in the last sixteen years, I've worked for a nonprofit. I'm a salary physician for a nonprofit. So I'm not a money maximizer, and you don't have to be. That's a good thing. You know, again, in our field, we make enough income that. If you live below your expenses and grow over time, uh, you'll be fine. The only other thing I will emphasize is, is the importance of disability insurance. Um, that was not new to me, but it reinforced that critical need, which many physicians are underinsured for disability. I have uh, a short-term disability and a long-term disability through my policies through my employer, but I also have two disability policies, which I have paid for on my own since residency. Uh, I rolled them over from residency and have continued them. So was that we're 25 years later, after paying those premiums, I'm cashing in. So now I have, at this moment, three different insurance companies paying me every month. So, you know, honestly, I will take a pay cut to go back to work. And I want to go back to work. And I will do that. And I've done that before. Again, it's money's not the driver driver for me. I want to talk in a moment about this idea of retirement. But before I do, you mentioned that you were first diagnosed in your 30s. And they said, oh, you got a 50% chance of being around at some designated point in the future. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a moment where you're like, why am I saving and investing and doing all this? Like, I should be spending my money now because I might not have a future. Was there ever that thought process? I'm sure I had the thought, but um, I don't think it stuck with me too far. I mean, one, I, I've always been an optimist, so I thought, well, 50-50 chance. Um, there's an excellent um, article written by Jay Gould, who's an evolutionary biologist at Harvard. He's passed away now, but it's still available online. And I think it's called The Median is Not the Message. And uh, he was given, I think he had um, mesothelioma, if I'm correct, uh, abdominal, maybe it was very, very aggressive cancer. And he was told he had a very limited time. And uh, the physician told him, like, don't go to the literature because you'll be so depressed about your future. Um, you know, and he read it and, and he thought, well, wait a minute. The, the average is bad. The median is bad. But there's a tail on this curve, a fat tail. And I'm in Harvard. I'm well educated. I have money. Like, why am who says I'm not in that fat tail? So I had kind of that viewpoint. It's like, well, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to make the best decision now for the future. And and again, I was married. Uh, we hoped to have children, which we we have two children now. So you know, I had I had things to look forward to and wanted to plan for those as, as best I can. And none of us know when when we're going to meet our maker. Uh, we we don't know. So, yeah, we go forward. And my uh, prognosis recently, I was told I have about a 50% chance of being around in five years. So exactly the same thing. Messages when you were 34. Yeah, Yeah. over two decades ago. So, uh, you know, are they right or they wrong? I don't know. We'll we'll find out. And so the, the burning question is, will you retire? Clearly, you do not need to make money anymore. How will you know when it's time to stop? 
Well, retire is a, you know, one of those words that doesn't have a clear, consistent definition as far as I can tell. But I uh, have a blog post I think I put in my book, uh, Finer, F-I-N-E-R, Financial Independence, Never Ever Retire. Um, and by retire, I, I don't necessarily mean that everybody needs to work uh, for, for money um, or have a wage. But I think it's part of it is to acknowledge that a lot of the benefit I get from my employer is a nice paycheck. That's great. And really good benefits, uh, which certainly helps me and my family now with disability and, and good health insurance. But uh, there's a lot more that adds value, the, the value of work, uh, helping people in my profession every day. I help someone. And I work in a safe environment with supportive colleagues who I admire and I'm treated very well. I'm treated res with respect and in a great condition. I can set my hours, see the kind of patients I want. Um, you know, it's not something I'm trying to run away from. I think people in the fire community, you know, if they're running away from their job, I, I think it's time to do some soul searching to figure out what is it that you really enjoy. And what I enjoy is helping people, uh, challenges and teaching and i get to do that every day at work so i see it as a privilege maybe a you know a kind of an antiquated way of, of thinking of medicine in the sense that it's more of a calling than a, than a way to mer you know make money so brian i wanted to really thank you for being on the show today you know i wanted to tell your story and part of the reason why is we love to split hairs right we want to say Someone came up from the upper class versus someone came up in poverty. We want to say someone makes a lot of money and they're a physician versus someone makes less money because they're a teacher. We want to say that someone is healthy and has 30 or 40 years to live, or maybe they were given a diagnosis in their 30s that they had a 50-50 chance of living for five years. We love to split all these hairs, yet as your book shows, the financial advice is actually the same. Like it's the same for everyone, regardless of where you come from and regardless of how much you make, it's to earn what you can and to save what you can and to invest what you have left over. And then most importantly, after that, to live your life. And that's exactly what you've done. I want to end this episode the way we end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and how people can get in touch with you. First and foremost, you are currently not working because of disability and medical issues, but you expect to be coming back soon. Is that correct? Yes, I'm, I'm going back within a few weeks. And if people have questions or want to learn more about you, what is the best way to reach out to you? Well, I think uh, we're looking at my blog, wealthydoc.org. Um, you know, I said .org because it is a nonprofit. I'm not trying to make money off um, my fellow physicians or other readers. I started that blog to help mainly students and residents, but certainly attendings um, find help in that. So yeah, what's up for me? I'm going to continue more same. Fortunately, I love my life. I like my job. I've been very, you know, happy. Um, you know, I've been blessed. You know, haven't talked about relationships, but you know, I hit the marital uh, jackpot um, over 25 years ago. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary coming up soon. Um, you know, just been very blessed despite. Uh, you know, all the medical issues and challenges. So really, I'm continuing doing what I'm doing. I'm going to update my blog. I'm going to add some more video content, make it some more uh, interactive. You know, if I live long enough and well enough, I would love to write some more books. 
you know, as you know, you know, it's kind of like running a marathon. You think you can't do it, then you do it, and you say, I'll never do that again. And then over time, <laughs> you say, No, I can't wait till I do that again. Um, you know, people like Corey Fawcett has written a series of books. You know, I could see myself doing something like that. So, so the book is Wealthy Doc's Guide to Achieving Financial Freedom Transform Your Physician Salary into Wealth, a book that is great for physicians, but also non physicians alike. Brian Foley, The Wealthy Doc, thank you for coming on Earn and Invest. Honored to be here. Thank you. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. So admittedly, I was playing with two concepts throughout this episode with Brian, the wealthy doc. The two concepts were, or maybe beliefs, I should say, and not concepts, was that privileged people only make it to financial independence. In this case, privileged people only become doctors. And it's easy for people who have a high income in order to make it to financial independence, but it is not for people with a low income. So two beliefs, two concepts, I kind of wanted to turn them on their ear with this episode. The first is this whole idea that people who come from privilege end up having these privileged positions in society, end up becoming doctors. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I wanted to present Brian because he is someone who grew up in poverty to parents who are high school graduates but not college graduates, who is surrounded by people who were not building wealth or getting professional degrees or on the career track. And he still was able to become a doctor, become financially independent, build wealth. Now, does that mean the American dream is alive and well? It's hard to tell, right? The idea is that maybe Brian was one of the few, right? Maybe for every thousand people out there in Brian's situation, only five or 10 will get to the heights that he got to. So possible, but I don't know if it's the rule or not. It is still true in America today. If you come from privilege, you're much more likely to be able to build wealth. There's no question about it. And the second point was, do you need to have a high income in order to build wealth? This is also one we argue quite a bit. I know lots of people who have incomes that never made it to six figures, who made it to financial independence. And on the other side, I know a lot of doctors like Brian and I who make six figures, some even go as far as making seven figures, but will never make it to financial independence, will never make it to true wealth because they spend all their money and be frivolous. So again, the same argument is there. Yes, if you have a high income, you do have a better chance of building wealth. But no, just having a high income will not build wealth for you. So what am I trying to say here? What am I getting at? I guess the point is I don't have the answer. I don't know if it's easier for priv people who grew up in privilege. I suspect it is. I don't know if it's easier for people who have a high income. I suspect it is. But interestingly enough, the advice we give to people, whether they come from poverty and low income or from high income, whether they have high paying jobs or low paying jobs, the advice we tend to give everyone, the advice Brian gives in his book is exactly 
the same. Earn as much as you can, save what you can, pay attention to your spending, and invest what's left over. It is straightforward, simple, personal finance advice. And more importantly, it's something we have a modicum of control over. So regardless if you come from privilege or not, regardless if you have a high income or not, you can control a little bit of what you're saving and spending, and you can do your best to make as much as possible. Those are things in your locus of control. What you can't control is legislation, the class warfare of America, or even what our next Congress will or won't pass that will help people who are in a disadvantaged place in American society. You have very little control over that. Not zero control. I mean, you can control who you vote for. You can control how much advocacy you're willing to be involved in. Some people are very political and are willing to get out there and form grassroots organizations that really push for change. But that is way, way out of your control, whereas basic personal finance advice isn't. And that basic personal finance advice mostly is the same for you, no matter how much you make, no matter where you come from, no matter what your parents did for a living. Brian Foley is a great example of someone who went from rags to riches, from someone who, even though he makes a lot of money, found that he could do just as well making five or $600,000 as he did making $80,000 by following this basic, straightforward financial path. As my friend J.L. Collins says, it is the simple path to wealth. And hopefully, as many of us in the society as possible will have the opportunity to follow it. All right, I leave things running just to catch our after show. Is there anything about the book or your story you think we didn't talk about or that was important that I left out? You know, I think it covered my my story pretty well. And, you know, about the book, I tried to talk for weeks about some of these topics. Um, <laughs> yes, and we didn't really, go into that detail, obviously. <laughs> right. Um, with physicians, I try to have some bullet points, which, which may or, or not be helpful. So I'll just kind of mention that now and you can... Uh, keep it or not, if you think it's helpful. But I, you know, I tell them there's seven or eight areas of uh, finance that you really need to learn about. Uh, you don't need to master every area, but just kind of know something about those. Um, one is is dream big, know where you're going. Um, physicians really kind of follow this path of academic excellence and how to get into a good residence program and so forth. And then they're kind of on their own and they don't really dream big about their future. And that may be you want a lake house someday, or you want to retire early, or you want to have private uh, school for your children. Whatever's important to you, Tesla for everyone in your family, it's fine. But you just need to know, you know, what it is and, and dream big because you can, you know, uh, acquire substantial wealth over the time if you play your cards right. Um, dumping debt is a big one for physicians and most yeah. everyone. You graduated yeah. college or graduate school. You know, I aggressively attacked my debt right away, and and that took a really 
big pressure off me and I didn't realize how much pressure was there until it was gone. And once I became debt free, I, I really did feel free. Um, even to the max, you know, even as a physician and there's a marginal decreasing benefit, you can still make sure you have a good contract, make sure you're doing procedures that you're fairly compensated for, um, you know, look out, look out for a good deal, um, automating your investing, simplifying your investing, getting the uh, defense ready, it's called establish your defense, means um, just do a little bit of planning, have all your insurances, there's seven or eight insurances, which I recommend we can talk about if you want, but uh, to have those in place. Um, and then, you know, think about your future legacy. Uh, have a will if you have children, you know, simple things like this. But it's amazing how many physicians just, just don't think of these things. So getting those components uh, in there is kind of a way to structure, um, to structure the talk. I talk to them about their financial desires, um, D-E-S-I-R-E-S, so D, don't debt. Um, and dream big. Um, e earns to the max. S is save automatically. I invest simply, which is you know index funds, broad market. They don't have to be picking stocks. They shouldn't be. Um, R is reinvest your profit. So if you have a rental property and it's giving you money, then go and spend that money. Reinvest it. Consider real estate. It's a good source of depreciation and income. If you're interested, it's not mandatory at all. Um, establish a defense, which again is insurance and titling your property correctly for your state. Um, and then secure a future, which means your legacy, your will. Um, when you pass away, do you want this to go to your children, grandchildren, or do you want to donate that money to charity? You're going to have substantial wealth. So some of these you're going to get it. And you just need to decide who, you know, how you want that done.